0: All right, let's go ahead and get started. We'll begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. I see uh, a few new faces out there, so I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Joe Boschman. I've been running these classes, gosh, how long has this been? Got to be more than five years now. Uh, I also teach uh, Sunday morning Bible study at 9 o'clock, I've been doing that for over 10 years. I've got my master's in theology, and I didn't set out to do this. They just asked me to do it one day, and I have a hard time saying no, so. Um, my wife, Jackie, is in the back. And my son, Gabriel, have got another son, Ian, who got stuck with baseball practice tonight, but you'll see him from time to time. And, uh, oh, and I know some of you have kids in religious ed. If you need to jump up and run out to get them, feel free, you know, we understand. Um, let's see, this class, uh, you got a syllabus here. I've broken it down into nine classes. They've in the past been 12 classes. Uh, fits a little bit better with nine with the sacraments. Um, so, and I think it'll hopefully grab your attention a little bit more, being a little bit shorter. We'll be completely done the class by the end of October. Okay, so plenty of time before the holidays start. Uh, let's see, anything else before we get rolling here? Um, I think that's about it Uh, make sure you get your email on there i'll occasionally uh, put out some emails and if you have any questions you know you don't feel comfortable asking you know in public or something like that you know you can always email me and ask me um you know my door is always open so to speak and with that um i guess we need to get rolling here Uh, please try to bring a bible every time um and we're going to start tonight in matthew chapter 28 the last uh, paragraph in uh, the gospel of matthew so the course title is the scriptural basis of the seven sacraments this is not going to be a class dealing with all the theological uh, minutia of sacraments it's basically going to uh, look at the sacraments from the scriptures what were the Prefigurings. What were the indicators in the Old Testament that pointed forward to the sacraments? How did Jesus lay out the sacraments? What did He do to to show their significance? And then, how did the Church take them and run with them? Okay, uh, so we'll try to approach all the all seven sacraments from them from that perspective. Today's class is going to be like an overview, kind of uh, setting the stage for what's going to be coming. In the future classes it's going to give context to what we're talking about Uh, then you look at the syllabus you see that all the the sacraments basically have a class each except for the Eucharist we're gonna have a class on the mass itself and then on the Eucharist itself because it is the greatest of the sacraments and uh, it it deserves more attention than all of the others Um, with that said let's take a look at Matthew chapter 28 starting in verse 18. This is right before Jesus ascends to heaven, his last words to the apostles, the last instructions, the very last thing before he ascends to the Father. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them In the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always to the close of the age right so several things that jump out first of all he's not leaving us he's going to be with us okay and the sacraments are going to be key in explaining how he's going to be with us but the core part of that is to make disciples of all nations right? And by doing that, he's going to utilize baptism, which is the door to all the other sacraments. So what he is saying here, it's the sacramental system by which the church who he is speaking to, the apostles, that is the core of the church at this point, it's going to be through the sacraments that he makes disciples of all nations. Now the whole theme of the sacraments in general and the theme of the class that we're going to be dealing with here is going to be union with God. That is the ultimate goal. That is what the sacraments will do for us. Give us union with God, right? And so we're going to have to look at that and explain that uh, as we go along here. So he's going to be with us and he's going to use the sacraments by which he will stay with us. So uh, an aside, uh, just as an aside, if you want to dig in deeper to what the sacraments are go to the catechism okay the catechism um, there's a lot there a lot to chew on but you can use it uh, sort of like an encyclopedia you know look up topics as you want not reading it cover to cover although it's not a bad idea to read it cover to cover but when you have questions on a specific topic go to the catechism and so the first thing i want to do is look at the catechism this is paragraph 1076 and it gives us a nice overview of the sacraments here. And then we're going to define the sacraments and see how that fits into salvation history. So this is paragraph 1076 from the Catechism. In this age of the church, Christ now lives and acts in and with his church in a new way appropriate to this new age. He acts through the sacraments in what the common tradition of the East and West calls the sacramental economy this is the communication or dispensation of the fruits of christ's paschal mystery in the celebration of the church's sacramental liturgy okay so through this class i'm going to try to break that paragraph down for us and and look at the different components a little bit more first of all let's define what a sacrament is okay Uh, this is from the catechism itself this is how the catechism defines a sacrament you may have remembered from your catechism class, you know, uh, sacrament is a, a sign instituted by Christ to give grace. That's the condensed version of it. But this is what the this catechism says. It's an efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. All right. Divine life is dispensed to us. Okay. Because of the fall, we do not have divine life in us. That's sanctifying grace, which the church always talks about. Uh, and we'll deal with that a little bit more later. But the sacraments give and increase sanctifying grace in us. Right? That's the divine life. That's God dwelling in us. Now, the word sacrament itself... That's important uh, because it gives us some clues about what the sacrament is. It comes from the the, uh, Latin sacramentum. In the East, it's a different word. We'll get to that in a second. But it's sacramentum uh, in Latin. And the word sacramentum literally means oath or a solemn obligation. Okay? Hold on to that idea of oath. We're going to come back to it here in a second. So sacramentum is an oath. Okay? Sacramentum comes from... The root sacrare, which means to set apart uh, as sacred or to consecrate. Okay? So the sacraments are something that set us apart from the rest of humanity as something sacred. They sanctify us. Now, that's in the West where Latin was spoken. In the East, where they, speak, where they spoke Greek uh, in the early church, the word wasn't sacramentum. That was used it was mysterion mystery okay and you go to uh, orthodox church they have the sacraments but they call them the mysteries okay so this is uh an important distinction but it highlights different aspect of what the sacraments are and there's one place in the scriptures which really gets to what a mystery is and it i think will shed some light so let's go to the the book of ephesians St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's after the Gospels, you get to Acts, then Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. All right. So, Chapter One in Ephesians. I'll give you a second to flip over. Some of you got phones with a Bible app. That's good. You can get to things quickly that way all right chapter one of ephesians verse nine this is the one place in the new testament where the idea of mystery is highlighted and there's actually one place in the old testament we don't have time to go into it but if you are curious the book of daniel talks about mystery uh in a way that no other old testament book does all right and it's it's really important uh daniel interprets dreams and he phrases he contextualizes his interpretation of dreams as revealing mysteries okay and so uh, it it gives some insight to what a mystery is if you dig into it but we'll confine ourselves to Ephesians and so chapter 1 verse 9 of Ephesians talks about what the purpose of the mysteries are and he says for he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's that idea of unity again, right? The mystery of Christ is dealing with uniting all things in him, in Christ. Unity, unifying, right? Um, At the Last Supper, you know, chapters in John, chapters 14 through 17, there's a big, long speech uh, by Jesus. It's his last words to his apostles before his crucifixion. And the last part of that, chapter 17, they call Jesus' high priestly prayer. And the heart of that is Jesus praying to the Father that they all be one unity. You know, all of them. Right, So unity among Christians, uni- unity among peoples, unity with God was all important. It was the last prayer that Jesus spoke to God before his crucifixion. All right, so that's chapter 1, verse 9. If you flip the page over to chapter 3, he discusses more about what the mystery is. In chapter 3, verse three he says the mystery was made known to me by revelation right so this is not something that paul is coming up with on his own all right it's something that's been revealed to him by god divine revelation this is what the mystery is and skip down to verse four when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, right? So this is something new, you know, it was hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's becoming plain now, and Paul is about to reveal what the mystery of Christ is. And then verse 6, you get to that and you're like, huh? He says, that is, you know, he's talking about the mystery, that is, so this is his definition of what the mystery is. That is how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's he getting at here? It's not just Jew and Gentile anymore. We're all becoming, and what is the word he used, heirs, right? Who are heirs? Sons and daughters, right? Those are the ones who get the inheritance. So what we're talking about here is family. Family that's the unity it's not um some kind of abstract unity it's family unity and that's what is at the core of what the sacraments are and of what jesus has come to do for us to make us family not just us family together but family with god all right so that's what i'm hoping to develop a little bit more as we go along here And just as an aside, let me just go down to verse 9 here uh, to show you the significance of this. In verse 9 he says, "...and to, to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places." Principalities and powers are basically referring to angels, Right? So the church is actually going to reveal this mystery to angels. You know, that tells us a couple of things here. First of all, that the angels aren't even in on this. okay? It, and the church is going to reveal that to them. So the church is something very significant here. right? Jesus is putting a lot of faith, if you will, into the church and what it's going to accomplish. Because the church is the... The thing that is going to dispense and give out these sacraments, these mysteries. All right, now, we talked about the definition of sacrament. We talked about the Latin word, right? The definition was oath. Now, looking at the scriptures, the word for oath in Hebrew is very significant, okay? And in the Old Testament, the word oath becomes almost synonymous with a covenant, right? And what's a covenant, right? We've, you know, in, in our day and age, we tend to think of a covenant as the same thing as a contract, but scripturally, from the Hebrew interpretation, it's not. It couldn't be further from what a, a, a contract is. A, co- a contract is basically an exchange of goods and services. You have a contract for a house. You get the house when you give money, right? you get something when you exchange something a covenant is an exchange of people right you're basically saying i am yours and you are mine it forms kinship bonds okay now what does that have to do with an oath this is where we got to talk a little bit about language um, in hebrew the word for oath is the word shavah right? that's an oath to swear an oath right it's the verb form when you look at the noun form of shavah it means the number 7 so what does that mean right the noun shavah is the number 7 literally the verb form to swear an oath literally means to seven oneself right so Anything else that we take away from this, we know that the number seven is significant, right? And where do we hear the number seven when you're talking about the Old Testament? Where the first place we hear it? Creation, right? And so that's where we need to go, right? Remember, to swear an oath and the number seven are almost synonymous in the Old Testament. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the to swear an oath and a covenant. Okay, when you form a covenant, You swear an oath, right? And we're going to see this play out with Abraham here in a minute. Now, God created the world in six days, right? Um, But there are seven days, right? What happened with the seventh day? He hallowed the seventh day. It's the Sabbath, right? But what happened on the sixth day? God created man on the sixth day, but he didn't create him for the sixth day he created him for the seventh day okay he was created with the beasts on the sixth day okay and that's significant too because you hear the number 6 throughout the bible all the time right 666 six, six, we all know that right as the the number of the beast number of the antichrist right but all the bad guys in the old testament are often associated with the number 6 uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel right he's the guy that destroys uh jerusalem in 586 bc and takes them all captive he builds a statue of himself and it's 60 cubits high by six wide right goliath who opposes god's people and opposes uh david you know he's six cubits high right so the number six is associated with the being beast-like right but seven is different seven is the number for the covenant and what happens on the sixth day after god creates man He puts him to sleep right and what does he pull out of his side his bride his wife well by putting him to sleep and he wakes up what day does he wake up on on the seventh day and who does he have with him on the seventh day his bride right adam and eve were created married essentially they were created in covenant right and god hallowed his creation on the seventh day you know for a hebrew hearing that creation culminates on the seventh day is essentially for them hearing that god creates a covenant with creation and adam and eve are created in covenant they're created in union with themselves but also in union with god in family so they are created in union with god they're created as god's family but, of course, that doesn't last, okay? Um, and we're going to talk more about that in a second here. But just to, to give you a little bit better idea about the covenant, I want to deal with Abraham a little bit, because Abraham really is the first one that the covenant is kind of spelled out on, okay? We have the covenant with Noah, right? There's several covenants that appear. We have Adam and Eve are in covenant, um, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, and then we're going to see a covenant with Moses, and then a covenant with David. And the sixth and final covenant is going to be Jesus, right? the covenant he establishes. And the final covenant, the seventh covenant, was, will be realized in heaven. Okay, but in chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, you don't have to turn to this. I'm Just listen for a second. I'm going to go through this pretty quick. Uh, God speaks to Abraham. The first few verses in chapter 12, this is where it all begins. Now the Lord said to Abram, he hasn't changed his name yet to Abraham, it's just Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you I will curse. And by you by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves what God is doing here is basically giving three promises to Abram he's gonna make him a great nation he's gonna make his name great and he's gonna give a worldwide blessing okay so the uh, these three promises as you go along through the story of Abram when he becomes Abraham those three promises are elevated to covenants in chapter 15, 17, and 22. right? Each one of those promises becomes a covenant. And by looking at all three of them, we see all the basic components of what a covenant is. This is going to help us understand the sacrament, so bear with me. okay? So in 15, what we see happening here is Abraham cuts these seven animals, the number seven again, um, in half and God in a flaming firepot in this vision that Abraham has goes through the middle of them all right forming a covenant so sacrifice is part of what entails the forming of a covenant you see a sacrifice right and you know we said that a covenant is forming of a kinship bond okay but to swear an oath has with it in forming this covenant The idea of a self-malediction right a self curse you know you remember the the old uh, little kids saying you know when you really want to promise something you know cross my heart hope to die stick a needle in my eye right (laughs) basically what you're saying is if I'm lying I'm telling you the truth but if I'm lying you can cut my heart into four pieces and gouge my eyes out right so with every covenant there is this idea of blessings and curses associated with the covenant because covenants when they're formed really can't be broken right you can violate the covenant and that triggers the curses associated with the covenant but the covenant themselves are are permanent right because they're founded on God on God's Word he's the one that ensures that covenants are firm and established right so what's going on here? with these animals and God's firepot he's basically saying i'm true to my word and if i'm lying i'm going to be like these animals all right and that's the basic function of the covenants that we see uh, as we go throughout the old testament you you have this idea of a self curse which is enacted through a sacrifice all right so sacrifice in chapter 17 we have the institution of circumcision, okay? And so this becomes the sign of the covenant for the Jewish people, right? It's a physical sign. So with covenants, there is some sort of sign associated with it, right? It's it's circumcision for the Jewish people, and it's established here in chapter 17. And finally, in chapter 22, the thing that's highlighted is God swearing an oath. God swears. You know in Islam it's it's sacrilegious to say that God will swear an oath because when we swear an oath we're invoking God's power and authority to ensure that what we're saying is true you know so help me God right you're calling down God's name to affirm what you're saying is true right and that goes to the whole idea of a self curse you know if what I'm saying is true you know, may God bless me. If I lie, may God curse me. It's the whole idea of when people testify in court and they put them under oath, they put their hand on the Bible. right? The idea here is if I'm lying, may the curses in this book come upon me. If I'm telling you the truth, may the blessings in this book come upon me. Blessings and curses. right? So in uh, Genesis 22, you have God swearing an oath. right? So all three of these show you these three things. You have sacrifice you have a sign a physical sign of the covenant and you have an oath being sworn right and covenants form family bonds you have God forming a family bond with people right specifically with Abram and as we go through you you see that it starts with Adam and Eve it's a couple right and then you have Noah which is a family Right? Eight people. Then you get to uh, Abram and you have a tribe. You get to Moses and you have 12 tribes. Right, So it's an ever-expanding idea. The covenant keeps getting bigger. It's not really a different covenant. It's a, it's an, a growing covenant as you move along here. When you get to David, it's an international kingdom. Right? He has all these different vassal states below him. And when you get to Christ, it's a universal kingdom. The word Catholic means universal. Going back to Matthew, what did he say? You know what was the uh, his final words again in Matthew twenty eight? Go therefore And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. The the idea of all, 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 all time, all places, you know, it's universal. Okay. Now, to put this in context a little bit more, all right. We need to look at the big picture of salvation history. Uh, we're going to speed through this quickly, okay? Uh, but essentially, in order to understand the sacraments, you got to go back to the beginning. You got to go back to the Trinity, right? And from the Trinity, you have to talk about creation. We touched on that a little bit. You have to talk about the fall, the incarnation, and the redemption. Okay? We don't have nearly enough time to touch on any of these in any kind of major way i you know i could do whole classes on each of these topics but let me just give you a quick rundown of this so you understand how the sacraments fit into all this all right so the trinity the godhead god is one but within the godhead you know we we talk about god as all-knowing you know all-powerful and all-present he's present everywhere he knows everything he is all-powerful okay but let's talk about what he knows first what does god have that he can look at and know right you know before creation there's only god what can god know right seems like a weird question right but what does he have to think about what is there there's nothing out there besides god right so he thinks about himself now we said god is all-powerful right You know when we look at the beginning of genesis he speaks and whatever he speaks becomes real you know he said let there be light and there was light he's all powerful so when he looks at himself you know let's reverse it when we look at ourselves do we see everything about ourselves not even close i mean it's it's ridiculous how little we actually know about ourselves do you know how many cells are in your body? How many hairs are on your head? You know, we don't know anything about ourselves, comparatively speaking. But when God looks at something, his intellect is perfect. So when he looks at himself and he knows himself, it's identical to what he actually is. If it wasn't, then God's intellect would be lacking something, wouldn't it? Right? Because whatever he doesn't know about himself, that would be a deficiency, a weakness. And he wouldn't be all-knowing. So God knows everything about himself. And the image of himself is so perfect that it's real. That is his word. When he sees himself, he has this idea of himself. We use the word word from John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. To describe this idea not a word like a spoken word but a word like an idea god's idea of himself that's what the son is right he is god's perfect image of himself his perfect knowledge of himself it's so perfect it's not something it's someone right now he has this image of himself and when he sees himself you know we are created in the image and likeness of God. We're going to touch on this in a second, but we we're created in his image and likeness because we have intellect, we can think, but we also have a will, which we can choose and love. Right? Those are the two great capacities of the soul, to think and to choose. Right? Well, when he sees himself, he loves himself, right? because it's all good. God is all good. And that love is so perfect, again, it's not something, it's someone, it's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the embodiment of God's intellect, his word, and the Holy Spirit is the embodiment of God's will, his loving capacity, right? But yet all three of them fully possess the Godhead, right? This is only inside of God, you know, within him. When he acts outside of himself, he is the divine being, right? All three persons act in their capacity, right? So we wouldn't know any of this except that Jesus revealed it to us. All right. I don't want to go into this too much because we could speak all day about it. And we'll never exhaust it because it's a mystery, right? Different use of the word. You know, a mystery in that sense is something that we can know something about, but we can't know everything about. Right. Now, the Trinity. From the Trinity, we have creation. The divine prerogative. For some reason, God creates the universe. He creates creation, right? More than the universe because he creates the angels as well. All things visible and invisible, he creates. Why? Well, someone said he created us because he thought we would like it. And he was right. (laughs) It's better to exist than not to exist, right? So it's gratuitous. He creates us. Out of generosity out of love right so he creates creation he creates us and as we said he creates us in the image of god that is we have intellect and will and in fact if you look at it from a different perspective the the spirit that he creates in us images the trinity in the fact that we are being right which is the father the father is being without origin and we have intellect, which images the Son, who is the 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 Word of God. And we have a will, which images the Holy Spirit, which is the love of God. Right? So He creates us in His image, right? And we are the crowning jewel of the material creation. Now that word is important, material, okay? Because we're not just souls, we're composite beings. We have a body and we have a soul that is a critical thing to understanding the sacraments because the sacraments are visible signs. they deal with stuff they deal with matter okay when we get to the individual sacraments we're going to see that they have matter and they have form right there's stuff that is dealt with water wine bread oil okay and then there's the form the words that are spoken the the things that are are done to the matter okay But we are material we have bodies and we have souls we're a composite being right so from another perspective we have three parts to us we have the body we have the intellect and we have the will it's another way of, of breaking down who we are now like we said with Adam and Eve we were created in union with God but when God created us he created us and he tested us he put us to the test why Because he wanted us to prove that we had faith and we had love for him. He wanted to test our faith and test our love. And of course, we went down in flames, right? We failed. And don't think that you could have done any better because we all would have failed. He took the, the best case scenario, the best examples that he could to put to the test, all right? and they went down in flames but as um, it says in the the easter vigil oh happy fall you know it's it was better for us in the long run that we failed because what we get back is something that Adam and Eve didn't have something much better all right so the fall breaks the relationship with God we're created but we fall through Adam okay the relationship with God is broken Right. he tested Adam and what, how, how did the test uh, originate what did he say you may eat of any fruit in the garden uh, but don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day you eat it you will die Right? remember what I said about oaths how they have a self curse built into it well that was the self curse built into the covenant established with Adam and Eve death Right. The covenant in some sense is still valid it can't be broken but the curses of the covenant took place death entered in okay and in fact we fell remember we're body uh intellect and will we fell in every capacity you know the book of hebrews tells us it was through fear of death right our our fear which is part of our emotions which is tied to our body so through our body through fear of death we fell Right? In our intellect, we fell because of pride. And in our will, we fell because of selfishness. And I say we because we're all in this together. We all fall with Adam. Okay? That's important because there's going to be a new Adam. All right. So we fall. Which means we are no longer in union with God, but we need to be reunited with God. We need redemption. Okay, now whenever you sin against someone, the the person that you sin against determines the gravity of the sin. If you sin against a stranger, you know, call some stranger a name, you know, that's bad. But the dignity of the person you're offending um, affects the severity of the sin. If you call your mother a bad name, ooh, that is much different than calling a stranger a bad name, isn't it? Right? Because your mother has a more intimate relationship with you, right? In the case of Adam, he sins against God, who is all powerful, all knowing, and all good. So the sin is an unlimited sin. You know, it's it's a sin without you know adam or man we should say has no way to breach the gap because you know of the the severity of that sin it is beyond him so god becomes man to do what man could not do for himself all right it was impossible for us to heal the breach between God and man because we have offended an infinite being and so the offense created an infinite gulf. So how does God resolve this? He becomes man. The incarnation. The incarnation is the heart of what's going on here. It's it's the foundational movement of God to fix what happened with man. When God becomes man in Jesus, he unites the Godhead to a human being, it changes us forever. It doesn't change God. God can't be changed, but the dignity and power of man is elevated immensely beyond anything that we could possibly have conceived. And the Jews were totally caught off guard to the point where most of them didn 't even believe it, right because they have this idea that God is one, and it's a true idea, but they don't understand the inner workings of God that's why we had to talk about the Trinity right They wouldn't have been able to know that except that God revealed it. God is in his inmost being a family, right, and so the Son becomes man to redeem us, so Jesus as true God. And true man could fulfill the covenant requirement that was violated by Adam. Right? That curse that Adam set loose. It will take a God man to um, redeem that. Okay? All right, now. He redeems that remember what we said about the covenant that was established there was three parts to it sacrifice the sign and the oath right the sacrifice is going to take place through the redemption through jesus suffering and death okay that is the sacrifice he's going to destroy the power of death by dying right he's dying by fulfilling the covenant see When Adam fell we all deserved death that was the violation the price of the violation of the covenant right and spiritually we did die and our lives are cut short you know you go back to the Old Testament and you know it says that people lived a lot longer back then so the idea is that death physical death is part of the violation the curse that Adam took upon us right and we deserve that right in, in the sense that we all failed in Adam but Jesus is going to overcome that by dying uh in fact you look at the old testament there's only one place in the old testament that it says that individuals are cursed right it talks about the curses for the nation but only one place it talks about an individual being cursed it says cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree so that's how Jesus is going to redeem us by hanging on the tree, fulfilling that covenant curse, right? Dying on the cross. So, he redeems us. He dies on the cross. Now, we as people have two different aspects to us. We're a corporate people. You know, we're tied together, right? We're all part, we're all sons and daughters of Adam. But we're also individuals now what happens at the cross what does jesus do what does he accomplish he redeems humanity right all of us the corporate humanity is redeemed and that is fully uh signified when he ascends into heaven okay this is the the power of the incarnation here what happens when he goes up into heaven the ascension is a like one of these forgotten components of the the passion we focus on the cross we focus on the resurrection but the ascension is critical because he takes human flesh in his incarnated self and he takes that into heaven for the first time heaven had been closed to man from adam's sin no human flesh made has made it to the presence of god to see god face to face you see this over and over in the old testament you know no one can see god and live right in one level the incarnation allows us this view of god because god takes on a human face right so now we can see god in his humanity but in the ascension human flesh comes into direct contact with the deity with god right for the first time paving the way for us right so the corporate has been redeemed but now the application has to flow to the individual each of us individually must be saved and that's where the sacraments come in the sacraments are the incarnation extended through time right it's the application of jesus death and resurrection applied to us as individuals that's what the sacraments do that's why the whole idea of unity is the theme of this this whole class So, how are the sacraments tied to Jesus' death and resurrection? And that's why I want to go, our next stop in the scriptures is the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 10. It's a little, odd little scene that he has with a couple of his disciples who have a strange question for him, a strange request, right? But Jesus, in his answer to them, gives us great insight into what the sacraments mean and how they relate to his death and resurrection. This is uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, uh, two of the uh, disciples most close to Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John were the, the inner group of the 12 who had um, Jesus' you know, most intense friendship And they were there in all the major uh, parts that he played on the Mount of Transfiguration. uh, In the Garden of Gethsemane, they were always there. But James and John come to Jesus, and they ask him a question in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Whatever we ask, right? God, it sounds like kids coming to their dad, you know, Dad, I want you to do whatever I ask you, right? Sure. <laughs> What's the question? Verse thirty six. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Right? He wants to find out before he answers. Verse thirty seven. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now you gotta understand for a Hebrew, to sit at the right and left hand of the king is essentially to have the power of the king you know it's not a small thing that they're asking for they're basically saying make us the most important people in the universe right that's essentially what it comes down to but he's not there yet he hasn't ascended yet he has a long road ahead of him so he responds verse 38 but jesus said to them you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the chalice that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The chalice that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Right? So he's not talking about baptism And the chalice the eucharist you know straight up the way we think of it okay it's it's more loaded than that right because he's already been baptized by john the baptist in the jordan okay that happened chapters ago right so when he says baptism he's referring to baptism but he's talking about something else it's a loaded expression right but he's talking about the sacraments but the power behind the sacraments the chalice and baptism right the baptism and the eucharist tend to represent all of the other sacraments they are the the door the baptism is the door into the sacramental system and then the the eucharist is the source and summit of all of the others because it contains Christ in himself okay so in verse 36 um same chapter here he highlights this a little bit more. Um, I'm sorry, not thirty six. Oh, I'm sorry. In chapter uh, fourteen, at the Last Supper, that's why I couldn't find it. At the Last Supper, we have the institution narrative, the institution narrative of the Eucharist in verse twenty two and. Through 24 so in chapter 14 verse 22 he says and as they were eating he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said take this this is my body and he took a chalice and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly i say to you i shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it new in the kingdom of god the blood of the covenant those are the same words that moses uses at mount sinai to establish the covenant with the nation of israel the blood of the covenant any jew hearing that would understand that this is the only place where jesus establishes the covenant where he uses the term covenant and it's In instituting the Eucharist right but he uses the word chalice right this is the chalice that he's speaking of okay but it's more than just the cup he's holding it deals with what he's about to suffer and if you go down to verse 36 you get that meaning coming across here because he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to to the father and so in verse 36 he says and he said Abba father all things are possible to you remove this chalice from me yet not what I will but what you will right so at the Last Supper he has the chalice he institutes the Eucharist it's the blood of the Covenant he's establishing the covenant he's establishing the family bond with all of humanity he's making the reality of unity with God possible in that sacrament right but it's tied to what is going to happen at Calvary on the cross. And to show that point, let's flip over to John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 19, verse 32. That's Luke. This is where all the stuff starts getting tied together. Jesus is on the cross. He's just died. Right. Life itself has died. Okay. The word has died. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That's important. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. Now, this is very unusual in John's gospel. He's basically gone 19 chapters narrating what's happened, right? And when he comes to this point, you know, it's like the director of a movie that you're watching stands up and says, okay, stop it, stop it, stop the movie. I got something to say, right? I mean, it's really unusual up to this point. He basically stops the narrative and, and testifies, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, right? Why at this point, right? Jesus has already died. He's been crucified. He had the Last Supper. Why at this point? What has just happened? The lance goes into Jesus, and what comes out? Blood and water, right? Who is Jesus? He's the Redeemer. What are we being redeemed from? From the fall. Okay, we just talked about this a little while ago. What happened with Adam? He's created on the sixth day. What happened on the sixth day? God put him to sleep, and where did we get Eve? Where did it come from? his side right this is the new Adam and his bride is coming from his side and his bride is symbolized by blood and water blood and water its baptism and the Eucharist right the sacraments which represent the church his bride there's two metaphors that are used to describe Jesus and his relationship to the church he is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride, the husband and wife. Right? And they form one flesh. The two become one. Right? He is also the head, and the church is the body, the mystical body of Christ. Right? So from his side comes his bride, the church, which is symbolized by the sacraments. The sacraments are going to be the thing that makes the church unique. Because the sacraments are how Jesus' death and resurrection is applied to each of us individually. It's the thing that unifies us with God. So let me finish up by taking uh talking about the church in just uh, a couple of moments here. We're, we're talking about the sacraments, the seven sacraments, all right? But you can apply that word as uh, a sign that gives grace both to the church and to Christ because the church is the sacrament of Christ, right? It is the sign of Christ which gives grace to the world. But Jesus himself, in his humanity, is the sacrament of God. It's the sign in human flesh that points us to God, that gives us grace from God, right? And the relationship between Christ and the Church in the sacraments, you can look at it from two different perspectives. From the Church, what does the Church do in the sacraments? The Church, it's, it's an act of faith with the sacraments. An act of faith, faith in Christ externalized by ceremony. Right, That's what the Church does. It has a ceremony which, through faith, and it's the, the whole Church which operates in each of the sacraments, Unites us to Christ. And in Christ, he enters the ceremony to act in the church. Right? And that's, you know, most specifically uh, we see that with the priest who acts in persona of Christi. You know, at the Mass or in any of the sacraments, the minister is standing in the place of Christ, right? Applying the sacraments. So it's not us, not the individuals within the church operating, it's Christ operating in the church when the sacraments are are performed okay it's his work that's why the the sacraments are said to work ex opere operato by the work done right it's a latin expression that means that they operate on their own power right it doesn't have to do with the the holiness of the minister so the priest could be you know the worst scumbag in the world who sins you know a hundred times a day but if he does what the church says he should do, the sacraments still have their full effect because it's Christ operating through the priest. It doesn't depend on the holiness of the priest. So in the sacraments, it's the whole Christ, head and body, that act. And each sacrament is contact with Christ, a unique and personal action of Christ on the soul. Uh, And I got a quote here from uh, Henry de Lubac, In his work, The Splendor of the Church, he said, and this is a great line if the world lost the church, it would lose the redemption too. Okay, that's how significant the church is. You know, certain denominations out there talk about the church being invisible, almost kind of explaining it away. It's really just me and Jesus, right? Jesus didn't think the church was an extra in all of this, the church is the bride. It's the thing that Jesus came to make. He built the church. And it's through the church that the sacraments have their power. And that's why in 1 Timothy, Paul says, the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. The church is the pillar and bulwark of truth. So the church is no small thing. All right, so in the coming weeks. We're going to be dealing with the sacraments and we're going to talk about uh, several different aspects of them. Like I said, we're mainly going to focus on the scriptural basis for the sacraments, but we're going to talk about who the minister of the sacrament is, who the recipient is, who can receive the individual sacraments, uh, what are the matter and form of the sacraments. Uh, we're going to discuss sanctifying grace, how that uh, enlivens the soul, and what we get from each of the sacraments in terms of sanctifying grace the divine life in us Um, and we're going to distinguish between sacramental grace and actual grace because each of the sacraments has their own individual graces built into them okay Uh, for example you know the sacrament of of reconciliation you know confession we are forgiven of our sins but there's a special grace given in the sacrament of confession to strengthen the soul to resist sin in the future. So each of the sacraments have their own individual actual graces built into them. And certain sacraments have a special character that change the soul. Particularly, well, there's, there's three. There's baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. When you receive those sacraments, the soul itself is changed, reconfigured to Christ in a special way. And so we'll talk about, we'll talk about that. And finally, through this whole discussion of the sacraments, there's one thing that you need to remember, that we as Christians, we are bound by the sacraments, right? But God is not, okay? He's not handcuffed by the sacraments. The sacraments give grace, but God can give grace any way he wants, right? So if there's somebody who is isolated from society or, you know, who can't get the confession or whatever? God can still work through that individual. He can bestow His grace however He chooses. But for us individuals, we are bound by the sacraments. Okay, um, so I, I wanted to throw that in there because the sacraments aren't magic. This is not some kind of you know we put the coin in and God has to to pay you know the the cookie to come out. You know it's it's not something like that. It's not magic. This is all grace. It's a gift of God, and he operates through his church to give us grace, to unify us, to unite us to himself. Okay, so uh, we run out of time here. Uh, if you want to ask some questions afterwards, you know, I'll, I'll be here uh, for however many questions you have. But let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, holy is your name and renowned your compassion cherished by every generation. Hear our evening prayer and let us sing your praise and proclaim your greatness forever. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. The of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you all.